Thank you for listening to the Jazz Violin Podcast, episode 11. Today we're talking to Tim Cliffus, or Tim Cliphouse. I always feel really bad because um, Tim speaks better English than me, and he's Dutch, and I can't even say his name. Tim Cliphouse. Uh, this episode is sponsored by Ithaca Strings. Um, Ithaca Strings is basically Eric Aceto, uh, who is a New York-based luthier, violinist, and sort of an engineer. Eric has made instruments and pickups for a whole host of amazing players like uh, Jean-Luc Ponty, Pierre Blanchard, uh, Matt Glazer, uh, Christophe Malinger, etc., etc. The reason I got to know Eric is because of his pickup system. He has developed an amazing dual sort of pickup microphone system, which is basically, it's like a high quality transducer pickup embedded into the violinist into the violin bridge and an electret microphone which hovers over the instrument and they both attach to the same stereo jack uh, which is attached to your chin rest and i've tried to do things like this in the past sort of you know homemade solutions or well not homemade solutions but you know basically having a pickup and a mic blended uh going through the same amp um, and it just ends up being that your violin looks like some sort of Frankenstein's monster um, and Eric's design is amazing it really it's lightweight and looks great your violin is not sort of covered in in loads of wires it's just what it's that's the thing is it's just all going into one wire this one stereo jack so let's move on to today's guest Tim Klipos um, Tim was actually the first person I ever approached to uh, learn jazz. And I, yeah, about 10 years ago, I got lessons with him in Edinburgh. Uh, Tim is an amazing musician and has played with all of the greats um, in terms of the gypsy jazz world. And he has his own trio, um, which sort of explores music out with that Uh, he is also one of the most prolific teachers of the grappelli style i'd say and also just one of the most prolific players in the grappelli style he's got a really great sort of late grappelli sound um um, yeah so we just we chatted about how he started and what he's up to now and um, how he's developed as a musician over the 10 years that I've known him. Um, yeah. Uh, please enjoy. Okay. So, we're both recording. Yes. Let's do it. Um, thanks for doing this, Tim. Welcome. And um, just start from start, really, if you're up for that. If you could just tell me how you started playing. Well, uh, I guess I was seven years old, um, and I must have told my mother I wanted to play the violin. Uh, I think I was influenced by the fact that when I was uh, very small, my family uh, were very close with another family where the father was teaching the violin so I, I remember seeing 
kids go up the stairs with violins and then oh. squeaky sounds coming out from <laughs> this practice room. Um, so that must have appealed to me somehow. Yeah. Okay. Um, then what happened was I had uh, four or five years of lessons with this guy who I'm still in touch with. He's now 81 and still teaching. Incredible. Right. Uh, a real dedicated uh, violin teacher uh, in mm -hmm. the Suzuki uh, tradition. Oh, and really? He was kind of a pioneer in the Suzuki uh, style. Uh, in Holland, certainly the first uh, to really? seriously do that. Um, and this has a bearing on, on, on the rest of my career, uh, as you'll see. So then later on, we moved to a different city and I had some other teachers. And then during my student years, uh, I actually had decided to uh, do some university studies in languages, but also the bug really bit me uh, while I was in these student orchestras playing all kinds of symphonic repertoire. And right. so I decided slightly later than uh, than others of my generation to uh, to start uh, having conservatoire lessons. Well, so right. you can just decide you still have to get in. But um, mm -hmm. I managed to get into uh, the conservatoire of Amsterdam uh, as a classical violinist. Mm -hmm. So that's when I actually started sort of getting a really good, solid uh, classical technique, which I'd not done that, that sort of young talent route where you're in this, in this mold, you know, you do all the pieces mm -hmm. and you end up doing all the violin concertos. And by the time you get to a conservatoire age, 18 years old, uh, you're already performing and all that stuff. I was more interested in the alternative styles, doing a little bit of, uh, of rock and roll and jazz and stuff, uh, yeah. but not on violin. So I hadn't actually made the connection f with the violin as an instrument that could be used for these other styles. I was using guitar, bass guitar and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, I got into the conservatoire and actually started seriously becoming a violinist and uh, gradually sidelined my uh, my language degree, even though I did did I was a good boy? I did finish it, um, mm -hmm. um, but I saw that uh, that I, well, I was just too enthusiastic about the music to let that one go. Um, and during my conservatory studies, I actually had a third stream, which was that uh, I fell in love with the music of Stefan Grappelli and Django Reinhardt. Um, and Stefan Grappelli, the French jazz violin maestro, was actually the first one who showed me how to play other than classical music on the violin, but with a classical technique. So actually it yeah. linked the two. And uh, that was really interesting for me because I'd listened to Jean-Luc Ponty and Mark O'Connor, maybe a little bit. And, mm -hmm. um, and they were, in terms of technique, doing such different things uh, than I was doing with the classical that there was no connection there. Mm -hmm. So um, then... I had a little band uh, in the style of Stefan Grappelli and uh, discovered that in Holland there is a gypsy tradition uh, of playing this music and these gypsies live in camps. Uh, they live in Holland, Germany, f Belgium and France basically. And mm -hmm. uh, I was very lucky to be in Holland, it turned out, because there we had a number of camps which had some really great names including Fappy Lafertin who's the, the guru of the style I would say nowadays. Yeah. And also the Rosenberg Trio, who at that time, when I started looking into this music, they were the, the biggest thing happening in Holland. They were all over the television. And they were actually doing this trio version of uh, Django Reinhardt's style. So yeah. I got kind of into that scene. I just 
went to a gig and I introduced myself and said, can you teach me? And they said, no, but you can come to the camp and you can jam. So that's how I had, during my very academic uh, way of learning the violin, which is from a teacher, uh, etudes, scales, talking about bars and, 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 and time signatures and keys and yeah. notes and stuff. From that, I went into this tradition where there was no words about music. It was just play and listen and imitate and try something else. So uh, I had to actually really... It was like a culture shock. I had to find a different way of uh, learning and of teaching even by the time I, I started sort of... They were interested in my classical stuff, of course. Right, yeah. Just like I was interested in their stuff. It's just different worlds meeting. Mm -hmm. um, so I had to actually relearn how to how to basically communicate in a in a rehearsal or a or a lesson situation um, yeah. and actually learn to really quickly uh, use my ears if there was something they played i would have to play it and imitate it and then remember it which was the hardest point because you'd learn one phrase and then they teach you another phrase and then you'd forgotten the first phrase yeah. So it's real brain training uh, that you have to do when you when you're not using pieces of paper and pens and or computers. So um, yeah, there were two tracks. Then I ended up in terms of music. I had the 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 gypsy, very natural way of training, which goes from father to son in those traditions and uncles and brothers, older brothers. If you're a kid and you're four years old, you just pick up a guitar and you start joining in. That's just how it works. And and then there was the the very uh, serious uh, paper tradition I call it of classical music and I managed to s slowly get the two to sort of mesh to get together um, and um, yeah it, it, it gradually became a career to go into gypsy jazz mm -hmm. uh, but with the classical studies I was getting a better violinist every year so it actually very much helped my, my jazz progress and when I think back to my Suzuki lessons which is where I started out I think it really helped that I had uh, these lessons at an early age because you actually do what the gypsies do the teacher plays and you imitate and there's no paper until after a year or so when you start reading notes hmm. and I, yeah. I see a parallel with many many of my colleagues uh, a lot of the successful ones uh, there are not very many because jazz violin is a very small field but uh, <laughs> of, of those who are doing well a lot of them are have had Suzuki training at some stage, which means they've been True. training their ears. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of uh, where my tuition was, and and uh, gradually uh, I started getting good enough to get a call here and there from from those same gypsies who I was actually just jamming with. And uh, Fappy Lafertan turned up once or twice uh, during that history, and and maybe three years after I saw him the first time. Uh, we were jamming together at a party in uh, a place called Gerven, which is where Paulus Schaefer lives, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Feigli Prizor, uh, so two other real names in the gypsy guitar genre, uh, both Dutch. Uh, and Fappy turned up there at a party and jammed with me, and then another year later I got a call uh, saying, ah. it's Fappy, I need a violinist, can you do it? Mm. And uh, of course I said yes, and I had five years of... Uh, Actually, bliss, musical bliss uh, with him where I was really an apprentice but very quickly managed to get into his way of music making and he was very much a teacher figure. Uh, he liked to teach uh, 
He was also difficult, or is also a, a difficult guy sometimes to work with. But he's he's intensely involved in music. He's intensely musical. Yeah. Uh, so that really, and he's somebody who investigates. So he actually, his mentality goes a lot beyond the gypsy mentality. He's always worked with non-gypsies, with, for instance, his erstwhile colleague Kunde Kauter, who was yeah. very poetic but also very philosophical uh, reeds and guitar player in, in Belgium. And, uh, you know, both of them are getting older now, but they, in their early years they had this band called Wazo, which, oh, yeah. which basically single-handedly led the revival of this gypsy jazz style with, with a bunch of guitars and a fiddle and maybe a clarinet. Yeah. Um, at the time that Stefan Grappelli was also getting more famous again. Mm -hmm. So Fappy was, was where I learned the ropes and I had the chance to just do tours with him and, and try night after night the same repertoire, uh, try a tune again, see how I played it this time and oh that didn't work so well, maybe try a different thing tomorrow. Yeah. So that, that idea of honing your skill with gig after gig. So that's yeah. where it kind of my gypsy jazz education uh, was kind of formed. Wow! So you're so you're basically you're. I mean, I'll say I'll say jazz because I'd say that gypsy jazz and jazz are just jazz. They're just the um, same. Yeah. Um. But your jazz, your jazz playing was formed on gigs. A lot of it. I was yes, but of course, I I then if there were things that I that didn't work, I would get frustrated and and work things out at home. So I would practice. Mm -hmm. And for instance, one of the things that really interested me was that when the first time I started playing with the Rosenberg trio uh, they all their tempos were higher than Fappy's tempos <laughs> yeah. which meant I was not used to playing their kind of tempos so I had yeah. to rethink and discover you know what is it that makes you play fast how do you do this and it just meant practice sessions at home with a metronome yeah. uh, on one chord just getting my finger and my bow fingers left hand uh, and my bow moving fast enough yeah. And then to relax into that, so you actually get a relaxed approach, which is which is what Stefan Grappelli, what made him so great. He was never yeah. tense. Yeah, yeah. So, um, when in terms of practice, what are some of the things that you remember helped you when you were first looking at learning a tune? Uh, well, Fappy always said, learn the melody really properly. So uh, you would listen to Stefan Grappelli play it, and then you'd realize, well, yes, he's playing the melody half, sort of half the melody, yeah. but then he's improvising already because he, of his generation, everybody kn knew those tunes. So he yeah. could be very, very um, sort of free-flowing when he played a melody and people would recognize it. That's no longer yeah. the case. Mm -hmm. So we're now actually looking at ancient music, you know, yeah. in terms of Gershwin and Cole Porter. So it actually, when I was playing with Fappy, I was actually going back to the source and, and learning the melody properly and listening to other types of jazz players, jazz singers like Ella Fitzgerald. Mm. Um, actually, going back to basics and discovering what's a great bass line. Well, Ray Brown is a nice template for that. Yeah. Uh, what's a great accompaniment? Uh, Barney Kessel is a great mm. template for that. Yeah. Uh, what's great soloing? Well, Stefan Grappelli had some great, great soloing, but his best periods, I found out, were late 60s when he made a few albums with Barney Kessel, early uh -huh. 70s when I was he was playing with piano and drums with yeah. Alan Clare in England, in London, who was a very, very sensitive accompanist who was perfect for Grappelli. 
and then the very early days with the uh, with the Hot Club of London with Diz Disley. That was oh, actually yeah. his best finest period. He was in his mid sixties, uh, being rediscovered. So he was like really excited um, mm-hmm. because he'd been basically a, an anonymous player for so long after Django Reinhardt died. Yeah. Uh, or even after the war, because in the war they kind of split up uh, when yeah. Grappelli stayed in London and, and Django went back to France. Um, and he'd been very famous with Django, so he had this massive, you know, two decades of, of anonymity. And then suddenly he burst back on the scene through this guy, Diz Disley, and, and, and Alan Clare, Edinburgh Jazz Festival, Cambridge Folk Festival. And he mm-hmm. got on the television in England and he got massive in England before any any success elsewhere even France, where he was from. Yeah. And he actually practically moved to England. So that period, the 60s and 70s for Grappelli, I actually started focusing on that as, as a template for phrasing. And, and, and then, of course, I started listening much more to the other violinists. Um, Joe Venuti, who was, of course, the guy who influenced Grappelli so much and Grappelli mm-hmm. stole so much from Joe Venuti. <laughs> yeah, totally. To Joe Venuti's annoyance, because Grappelli got much more famous. Yeah, but you know it's it's like it's like investigating. You're doing research, so that's yeah. also part of my practice is is listening and going, why is this guy famous and why is this other other guy not so famous? And I found yeah. out well the difference between Stefan Grappelli and Joe Venuti is, Grappelli has a much more flowing technique. He is sounds much more relaxed. Joe Venuti sounds tense when he plays, yeah. and people don't like tense. They like relaxed. They like people who are in in, in control. I mean, I'm generalizing a little bit. Giovannuti had some wonderful stuff, of course. Sure, yeah. I know what you mean now. But when you look at Venuti and the bowing, the bowing of Venuti is a bit more like the bowing of, let's say, somebody like Yehudi Menuhin. Lots of bow, and that means that when you get older, your arm's not as, as strong. Uh, you start sort of cracking up. Grappelli used tiny amounts of bow. When he was 80, he could still do the same as when he was 50 mm. because he dev- devised this very efficient... Uh, technique that could be played with a very relaxed arm and very little movement yeah. and so a very subtle style so th- that for me was actually most important that I actually started to discover you're a classical player you're using lots of bow and that's completely wrong for this type of rhythm music so yeah. I started practicing bowing just I call it slow bowing uh, just patterns things yeah. from Grappelli solos uh, licks copying little phrases uh and then trying to put them in a tune. And there were not really, we're talking about 20 years ago, so the internet was, well, not 20, but maybe 15 years ago. The internet was not uh, full of backing tracks like it's now. So yeah. I had to kind of devise my own backing tracks or play along with the original recordings, which is actually a much better exercise than you would think, because yeah. you actually learn to follow the flow of a recording, the not perfectly metronomical <laughs> A time feel uh, because sometimes something will speed up a little bit and yeah. that actually happens for a reason um, and to, to look at dynamics phrasing all the things that Fappi was really always thinking of when I was working with him yeah yeah okay and so that was, that was about 15 years ago you say yeah I was I was sort of mid to late 20s when I was uh, connecting with Fappi and and uh, sort of finishing my conservatoire and it's yeah. all sort of happening at that same time. Yeah. Um, so, let me see what I also had written down to ask you. Um, 
what were some of the things that you maybe struggled with when you were when you were first learning jazz or even just what you still find you struggle with if 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 there is um, anything <laughs> Well, um, I, 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 I would certainly say at the beginning, uh, what I would do, and I'm sure that uh, any listener would be doing the same if you're trying to learn jazz violin, uh, you record yourself and then you mm -hmm. listen back. And that's a very frustrating process because you hear all your faults. You know what's good and not good because you're listening to the greats. So you're actually discovering, I can't do this, I can't do that, I can't do that. So it's, it's in a way discouraging, but it's also if you're of a positive frame of mind, like I am, uh, it's mm -hmm. also motivating. But there were certain brick walls that I would that I would bump into, um, and one of these was I heard myself playing lots and lots of scales. So I understood where I was in the in the chorus. I would understand how to change a scale if we had a key change, but then. I wasn't playing enough melodies, so actually when I was improvising for myself, I was just coming up with scales, and then I'd learn a Stefan Grappelli solo, and that would sound wonderful, but that was not my music, so that was just imitation. And of course, what you want is that that's kind of a top-down top, top down approach, is you learn the music the way it sounds, and then you try and learn how it actually works. Yeah. And the bottom-up approach is you actually realize how it works, and you try to put your own notes on there. And, mm. and that bo bottom-up approach is frustrating because you know you don't have a good melody. Yeah. So you're playing just scales or just arpeggios. And uh, that took me a while to actually somehow integrate the licks, the ideas that Grappelli, and by then, not just Grappelli, but also people like Stan Getz, uh, Joe Pass, things they came up with, uh, phrases that I loved, uh, I would practice and practice and practice and then I would start improvising and, and the, the, the lick, the phrase would not come out because <laughs> I'd forgotten it. But that's a slow process and, uh, or at least for me it was a slow process. Uh, I didn't yeah. have any teachers because the, nobody was teaching, the gypsies weren't teaching and there were no violin, jazz violin teachers at the time in, in the style of, of gypsy jazz at yeah. all. Yeah. I think I can pretty safely say I'm the first guy ever to seriously uh, categorically start teaching and writing books and uh -huh. uh, you know uh, that was not there in in the year 2000 or yeah. even further back let's say 99 or 98 which was my period with Fappy so and and the whole idea of of gypsy jazz festivals uh that was not really happening outside of Samois sur Seine and a few other festivals in France Mm -hmm. So since then, we've seen a, a, a resurgence of, of gypsy jazz yeah. uh, with younger generation of players. And then, yeah. of course, with that comes, oh, wait a minute, we can do workshops, we can do teaching. Yeah. So for me, it was frustrating not to have anybody to tell me, well, you're actually, this is the wall that you're running into. This is yeah. how to fix it. And I've been actually very grateful that I've uh, been there for other people who've had exactly the same problems as I had. Uh, yeah. And then to say, well, actually, this is my experience and this is how to fix it. So, mm -hmm. so uh, you know, a lot of players have made that route a bit quicker yeah. than, than I have. Well, that's that's how we know each other, isn't it? Because you yeah. taught me, I, I think it was like 10 years ago. Yeah, something like that. In, in Edinburgh. Yeah. You were my first uh, teacher in, about, in jazz. Yeah, I think. Well, I what you did so. was was what uh, what I was also doing with the gypsies. You just get in touch and you say, yeah. "Hey, I'm I'm doing this. I'm learning. I'm struggling. Can I have some help?" And yeah. uh, for me, it was really really helpful that the gypsies were there and they were mm -hmm. very very hospitable. They were welcoming. They really 
uh, respected my classical chops, uh, my, my technique. They were interested in that because their own violinists, there were only a couple, but they were very much self-taught, so they sounded yeah. quite raw and, and, and they had quite a different tuning, yeah, um, sure. which is a, a different thing. I love it as well, yeah. but it's just a different thing. So they weren't as, as virtuosic as Grupelli. Yeah. So in, in me, they heard kind of somebody who could do that and who could mm -hmm. actually, and that's how I'm seen in the scene now. You know, there's yeah, uh, there's a lot of respect from them because I do what I do and I played with Fappi and I played with Stocholo and mm -hmm. I played with Paolo Schaefer. And, and so, but that uh, did, it helped so much just to be able to jam with them and to find where my weak points were through the jamming. Mm -hmm. I'd think, oh my God, I can't do this at all. You know, this this tune or this tempo or I can't play a ballad properly and then you go home and you just think well it's a puzzle you know how do I crack the code yeah. you try things you 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 find things out so when you did that when you got in touch um, by that time I'd already done a few workshops and the first mm -hmm. one actually happened in America at the uh, Django Fest Northwest in 2004 uh -huh. which was we want you at the festival you're going to play with Angelo the bar who I'd mm -hmm. already toured with um, so we were both flying in from Europe, and they were gonna. They did a re DVD recording, which is I, I still rate that as a as a recording, live recording, mm -hmm. uh, live at Django Fest Northwest. And uh, they said, and we also want you to do a workshop. And I said, workshop? Geez, I've never thought about doing a workshop. But yeah, right. I've I've seen hundreds of teachers at my classical in my classical life. Uh, I I can sort of do that, but then with jazz, I'm sure. So I said, yeah, of course, I'll I'll teach. Um, and the only guy who was really teaching at that time, uh, like a system, was Robin Nolan on the guitar. Right, he was yeah. there too, doing his workshop. I was doing my workshop. And then there were a few local Americans who were doing some stuff. But it was all sort of really beginning. Right, yeah. So uh, so that, yeah, for right, four okay. years probably before we met was my first workshop. Yeah, but by then you had like a, uh, yeah, I feel, I feel like you had like a system. You had You had some things, I remember that, that definitely stuck, especially with the Boeing. That were that were, there was like a system that you had devised, and I imagine do you still use that? Yeah, uh, of course you fine tune things and and you 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 see how things work with people and and you mm -hmm. gradually. If you're a teacher, you're always moving because the good teachers, in my opinion, were always the ones who would keep learning all their lives. So yeah. I try to aspire to that to that model. Um, but uh, I guess 2008 was the same time I released my first book. It was around then, yeah. Gypsy Jazz Violin with Mel Bay. And that was actually... I think was it was actually, before that, actually. Mm, Is the Gypsy Jazz Violin the one that has a picture of Grappelli, like the yeah, painting of Grappelli on the front? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's before that. Is it? I think you. that was the second time I had a... I, had, I, had, I think I actually had about... I think I've had three lessons with you. Yeah. Um, and actually all, all of them ages ago. Yeah, I need well, to get but, another but, one but, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, um, we'll make an appointment and, yeah, and have I'm another. I'd it. be really interested to hear what you're doing right now. It's uh, yeah. great to see you're gigging and you're recording and doing all yeah. this. So, yeah. um, but for what happens when you write a book, you actually have to think about how to present what's kind of a vague mm. jumble in your head. And I did the book because people at the workshops were asking for a book, and the only yeah. guy with a book out, more or less seriously, was Robin Nolan. Yeah. And so I thought, well, there's nothing for violin. I'm probably the guy who should do this because I don't know anybody else who's sort of, you know, uh, interested in teaching and playing at my level at the same time. So, yeah. and I can use that experience to help others. Um, but I have to 
formulate what actually is jazz violin how does it work yeah. um, are there specifics of gypsy jazz well not really it's just jazz mm. but it's on a violin and it's on a guitar and a bass so it's, yeah. it's the lineup that makes gypsy jazz more than anything else of course and uh, yeah how do you play on a dominant chord how do you play on a tonic chord uh, what bowing do you use the, the, the type of bowing yeah. which I call slow bowing, which is rhythm bowing, which is not connected uh, to, to classical bowing very much. It's mm -hmm. very different. But yeah. at the same time, it's a classical technique. People always ask me, you know, do you have a special jazz violin? I say, no, it's just a violin. <laughs> it's a funny question. I always laugh. That is funny. Um, it's a bit like the fiddle versus violin thing. Yeah. People What's ask, a isn't are it? you playing a fiddle or a violin? I'm saying yeah. both. Uh, you know, it's just the yeah. same thing. Yeah. Well, if you, you spent a lot of time in Scotland, haven't you? And yeah. that, that, a lot of people even classical musicians call it a fiddle there yeah i do too that's i started Actually, calling yeah, it do. a fiddle yeah yeah ah. yeah um so yeah you know what i do i just do remember and actually the the some of the bowing patterns that you taught me i do feel like those were really helpful Actually. Great. Yeah, well, yeah. I just listened to a lot of Grappelli solos for the book and I transcribed them and I had to actually really really listen to his well, as far as I could to yeah. the slurs he was making in his bowing, which yeah. is really hard. Is he doing an up bow here? Is he doing it yeah. down? How does this sound? Listening yeah. like a thousand times to one bar. Yeah. Uh, but that really helped because I did sort of graft uh, withdraw from his playing. I, I kind of came up with some universal principles. Yeah. And they're, they're non-classical slurs. They're slurs that go against the beat. and But at the same time, enough separate bows as well to make mm -hmm. it kind of groovy and, yeah. and and fun with a lot of noise going on yeah yeah i know what you mean um i have noticed as well about just in terms of your playing well i mean I, maybe i've i am um, i'm only seeing things from videos and occasionally i'll see a video of you and i have noticed that you your playing's probably changed a lot over time yeah um i think that when i was first checking you out 10 years ago I was like, you know, when I was looking for videos, you did have more of a, you seemed, I don't know, maybe a bit more classical. There was still, or, or it was very much Grappelli, but it felt like over the last uh, 10 years, you sound like you are coming out with lots of stuff that is not just Grappelli and is, is more you. Yeah, I think when I started out, um, especially also with Fappi, who loved Stefan Grappelli, in the especially the 30s so the old yeah. recordings with Django and the difference between that period in Grappelli's life uh, and the later 60s 70s period I talked about earlier is that he got freer with his bow mm. and in the 30s he was still using a bit more bow and and a lot of sound now there's a very very simple reason for this and it's my I did exactly the same development in my in my career mm -hmm. with Fappi there were two accompanying guitars Mm. And when I was playing, Fappi was also accompanying. And he was just like Django. He could accompany pretty loud, you know, putting accents in and little yeah. drop chords and, and tremolos, just the way that Django did it, because he loved that sound. Mm -hmm. And so did I, but it meant I had to play a lot of high register stuff. That's true, and I had to yeah. use more bow in order to just get out in mm -hmm. the balance, come out of, you know, have be heard. Mm -hmm. Then when I started playing with my own bands, it's no coincidence that I have a trio with mm -hmm. one guitar and mm -hmm. one double bass um, and that's mainly uh, because of sound and because of rhythm things 
if you lock yourself into a, a gypsy jazz quintet, mm-hmm. then the rhythm players have to actually play very much the same. So there's mm-hmm. two guys doing the same thing. Yeah. And the only reason there are two guitarists in this tradition is because Django said to Stefan, I don't want one guy backing me up because then you have two guys and I have one. <laughs> That's a very good point. So his reasoning was, I need a strong backup for me to sound like a massive band as well. So that made things harder for Grappelli because now he's looking at three guitars instead of two. <laughs> That's really and funny. rhythmically it locked in so much that the rhythmic uh, inspiration is a lot less than when you play with a smaller band and yeah. you have somebody mixing things up a bit more. And yeah. that's what happened very much when I met uh, Nigel Clark, who still is my yeah. my guitarist in my trio. Um, he was very, very uh, influenced by very many different things. And of course, Django was in there, but he doesn't play Django guitar. He plays a nylon strung hybrid yeah. guitar. It's a softer sound, but he's also incredibly fast. Mm. Um, also, he, he doesn't go chink, 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 mm-hmm. chink all the time. He mixes it up. And that's yeah. much more like Barney Kessel or players after him, yeah. which appeals a bit more to my kind of jazz taste. Yeah. Um, because it gives you more freedom, it gives you more ideas. You start bouncing off each other, and it's yeah. like a conversation. With the gypsy jazz lineup of the quintet, there's less of a conversation. It's just the two soloists talking to each other. Mm-hmm. And the, the accompaniment is a big, massive block uh, usually with, with very simple bass notes as well because there is no space for for walking very much. Yeah, It's a massive sound. That's why I've progressed also in terms of my playing because I've had given myself more space and then investigated how I can use that space in terms of cross rhythms, you know, polyrhythmic stuff sure. that goes through the bar lines, uh, dynamics, playing softer. Yeah. Uh, and of course, with good microphones, Grappelli in his in the sixties and seventies was able to play as softly as he liked. You know, back in the thirties, yeah. there was one microphone picking up the whole band, and he had to yell and scream to get yeah. stay on top of that massive sound. So I did a bit of the same uh, development, and and uh, I kind of enjoyed that because I just really went into that old period, and then later on, of course, when you're more interested in 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 other players, uh, other instruments. Uh, but I also started listening to Jean-Luc Ponty more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's also been a very big, big influence. Uh, him and uh, Zbigniew Seifert, the yeah. uh, Polish-American guy, who died very young, so there's not very much uh, available of him. Yeah. But he had a, a kind of... Well, the Mahavishnu Orchestra is in there which uh, with Jerry Goodman. The, so that's John McLaughlin, who was in Miles Davis's band. Yeah guitarist John McLaughlin uh, who was basically a London session guitarist and, and moved to the States to work with uh, with Miles Davis and then had his own band there's uh, there's Indian uh, Indian elements in there rhythmically speaking there's rock, there's jazz and, and Jean-Luc Ponty basically started out as a bebop violinist which yeah. is a, again very different from Grappelli using ghost notes all the time not much vibrato quite a hard sound yeah. and then he moved to the States and he played with Frank Zappa and then he played with the Mahavishnu Orchestra and he had his own band with George Duke and he became like a fusion player and I'd heard Jean-Luc Ponty before I heard Grappelli and I hadn't understood a thing Yeah, uh, I just thought yeah I'm very impressed but I don't know what to do with this music and then when I got into jazz and I learned the Grappelli thing and I learned to 
you know, Sven Asmussen and Stuff Smith's approach mm-hmm. and Duke Ellington. And you find all these beautiful players yeah. who are all in the swing era. And then you really become a, a more complete player. And then suddenly you start ap- appreciating the later thing, the the the, the cool and the, the fusion periods. Yeah. Uh, like uh, Chick Corea, the, the My Spanish Heart. It's mm-hmm. like amazing stuff. Yeah. that you can actually incorporate even if you're playing a mainstream jazz tune. Sure. So that's what you're hearing in my development and, and also my development actually, funny enough, working with a lot of classical players nowadays doing fusion projects between mm-hmm. the two, I've actually actually learned a lot about tone development as well from one or two who are very special players. Uh, there's one guy called Gordon Nikolic and he's in he leads the Netherlands Chamber Orchestra who I've worked with a number of times now. Oh, yeah. He's from... Uh, from Serbia, uh, but he's just a philosopher on the fiddle. He uses so many different sounds, many more than my other teachers ever did. So that's given me a, a new take on jazz as well. So it's whatever you hear from wherever you are in your life, mm-hmm. you you take it and hopefully you try to run with it. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. long may that continue. I mean, if that stops, then you're dead, you know. Yeah. Life yeah. Is, is a development and, and so is playing the fiddle and, and so is teaching. Yeah, but I mean, a lot of players they they do the thing and they stick with that thing and they don't change. You know, even yeah, I think it's really it's really cool to see people who who change as they go along. Um, yeah, I, I'm the same. I I really enjoy also with with Jean Luc. Jean Luc is is just the same. He uh, yeah. okay now he's in his in his heyday because he's obvious uh, or in his latter yeah day stages now because he's well beyond retirement age he's probably 70 71 or something yeah still playing great and he's looking extremely fit and he goes out with these rock formations and does the thing on this i mean he's a hero yeah uh but when he was a kid basically when he was early 20s and then when he was 40 the difference between those periods is massive yeah and for me the, the the most legendary jazz musician is miles davis because first he came out up in bebop worked with charlie parker then he made the kind of hard bop cool thing happen. Yeah. And then again, he goes into a new phase and he's suddenly doing electric fusion stuff. Yeah. All in one life. Yeah. And then yeah. massively, in, in every period, massively influencing many, many players. So he's, he's actually contributed, in my opinion, more to the history of jazz than any, anybody else in yeah. terms of its, its um, being seen and heard by other people. Yeah. Yeah, and and musicians getting inspired. He was he's been key, you know, yeah. in three or four periods of his life. Yeah, with with different results. It's amazing. You talking about Jean Luc? No, Miles Davis. Uh, Miles Sorry. Davis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jean Luc is has I would say two periods where he he uh, had his bebop style, which a lot of players love, and then he had his his fusion. Yeah, and of course within the fusion he's evolved. Yeah, uh, but there are two very different things going on. Uh, yeah, they are very. It is very. It is. It's amazing to to see those two different things actually. Yeah, yeah, and amazing that he came from France and he talked to Grappelli and yeah. and and he, that was his example, and yeah. he decided to totally not do that and just go his own way, which is yeah, a, that's amazing. It is. Ama- it is amazing. I think actually, you know, hopefully, fingers crossed, the next episode is actually going to be with him. He's oh great. Yeah. Well, so. send him my love. I talk to him every now and then on email. And, yeah. Uh, he is a very, very wonderful person. He, yeah, he really is. Um, right, okay. So, um, 
what was I? What I've just got this little list of questions as well that um, I wanted to ask you. Where are we? Ah, yeah. Um, what do you think about musicians learning jazz in conservatoires? Ha! That's a very good question. You know, I'm I, I'm asking you that question because because <laughs> uh, my memory tells me. Well, I can remember sort of half what you think. But well, I think it's what I think evolves, you know, uh, like anything, uh, because conservatoires are evolving. Mm -hmm. What I see in Holland and and I think also in Britain is that although I know the conservatoires there are not as well, so uh, that's more of a guess. But I see who's coming out. If I just concentrate on the main instruments, the saxophone, piano, bass, drums and, mm -hmm. and guitar. It seems to me like um, the focus for jazz is purely on the bebop and hard bop periods. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about a very narrow time splice from, let's say, 1946 mm -hmm. up till 1965. Yeah. So hardly two decades. And we're talking about a, a, a jazz has a history now of 120 years. Yeah. So uh, to take only 20 of those uh, seems to me not a good idea. If yeah. you look at classical music uh, and classical conservatoires, now classical music has, let's say, 400 years of history. And in the conservatoires, they're teaching each of these 400 years. Yeah. You can get real ancient music stuff. You can get Baroque stuff. You can get the classical period, your romantic. And actually, I'm saying you can get. Actually, everybody who goes through the system is required to do something nowadays. Yeah. This is different from maybe 30 years ago, but that's what's happening now. It's required to do some uh, current day music, mm -hmm. like current day uh, living composers, uh, 20th century stuff like Stravinsky, Bartok, and Prokofiev, yeah. and then the, 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 the 19th century names, all the way down to Mozart, Bach, back to Vivaldi, and even uh, med medieval music. Uh, there'll be a, you know, one of your subjects will have to be somewhere uh, doing a medieval project with. Yeah. Uh, I had Paul van Nevel, who's a, like an authority in in that scene, mm -hmm. doing this sort of really ancient church music with weird instruments that we don't see anymore. You know, yeah. uh, pre uh, pre precursors of the violin and and, and the trumpet. Um, I would really recommend the approach, that approach, to jazz conservatoires and say, yeah. right, we've got the old, old uh, ragtime, New Orleans, Dixieland, early swing with the massive big bands, then the small group swing with the Benny Goodman and the, the, the of course, Django Reinhardt and Stefan Grappelli have a place there because they are the biggest yeah. European contribution to jazz. Yeah. But then you go on, you go into mainstream swing, Oscar Peterson, then you go into... Uh, also the, the the whole bebop period mm -hmm. uh, and then go on and, and just end up with where we are now and yeah. and then have people choose where their strengths are because yeah. at the moment I'm still seeing hundreds of players coming out who are all bebop players yeah. and there's no work for them Yeah, there's literally yeah. no work yeah. there is work for 50 quid in a pub every yeah. week yeah. but that's not enough to make a living and a career Yeah. so I would I would really love conservatoire uh, jazz departments to start thinking that way. Yeah. Um, and that's actually the way that the classical departments are thinking. They're much uh, of ahead of the, the jazz departments nowadays. That's quite ironic because <laughs> jazz was seen as progressive and, yeah. and classical music as conservative. But that's, that's now the other way around, it seems. I, th I, th I think that might be a European problem. Or maybe I'm talking 
I agree. Out of turn, but I don't know if it. I think if you look at places like Berkeley or 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 other places in America, I think that they yeah. they they're quite happy to to look at all. But you know, you know why it's not an American problem is because it's American music. So yeah. it's their folk music. They yeah. have no hang-ups, no yeah. insecurities. They made it themselves. So yeah. yes, they they respect all jazz music wherever it's from from whatever era it is they mm-hmm. know it's part of their history in europe jazz started getting really known and really sort of mainstream actually in the 50s yeah and so the generation of players and even in the 50s in britain there was new orleans and dixieland revival going on yeah. but we're talking 50 years or well let's say 30 years after it happened originally yeah and but the main force has been bebop then mm-hmm. new people learning jazz were listening to charlie parker and those guys and dizzy mm-hmm. and and then those were the guys who went to teach at the first conservatoires in yeah. the 70s and 80s yeah and they're now gradually departing yeah uh, they're going they're they're you know retiring and and some of them are no, no longer alive even mm-hmm. um but they have very much stuck with what they knew yeah. which was a very limited slice of jazz history yeah and that's where it comes from it's it's nothing uh sinister or it's just a practical yeah sure, sure outcome yeah but what's funny is that there's always there's not we don't have in in the conservatoires so you're saying that you know that's what they knew but they won't look back and the people now who are teaching conservatoires tend to be people who are into like ECM stuff and yeah. you know and that's what they were cutting their teeth with and that seems to be what's taught at conservatoires now but then yeah. even less so bebop because actually I, I studied in at Leeds and uh quite quite quickly it was ECM it was it was right. like modern and it was actually bebop was was like yeah sort of old hat yeah it was sort of like yeah a bit of bebop but check this out you know yeah. check check out this melodic minor well look stuff. it's 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 a very good idea to check out what's going now going on now yeah. when i say now ecm is already kind of yeah. you know dated we're looking at hip hop fusion right now yeah. so uh but um that's that's good but if you're a conservatoire yeah an academic teaching institution you i think you have to offer the history and sure. so what happens is the teachers are doing just this little thing yeah and then of course you get the history of jazz you get some kind of uh, theory teacher who does a side subject a second subject for for people like a, they, they have to do this module on, yeah. on the history and of course nobody takes it seriously because it's it's talked yeah it's not played so you're you can't see somebody playing great uh let's say great new orleans stuff because there's nobody like that invited to the conservatoire so that's i think a a mistake because if you look at classical music you see uh there are teachers now in the conservatoires who are complete baroque specialists who are playing 1600s music yeah and they're doing it on period instruments with with the gut strings and the gut timpani yeah. the 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 calf skin timpani uh players yeah. with wooden sticks and all these things that people used to go that's ridiculous um but actually we've researched it and we actually found out that that's what they did yeah uh talk about a bass my bass player roy percy plays on gut strings oh right yeah that's because he 
partially grew up in the New Orleans revival in in Scotland. Uh, really? But it actually it works so well for our sound because we're an acoustic band yeah. and we, we 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 don't have that kind of amplified yeah. long long sound where this metal string just goes on and on and yeah. on but it's played very softly so you need an amplifier to, to have any sound mm-hmm. so uh, it's all these things you can explore these things and if you see somebody who's explored it and he's like a real authority and they come to the conservatoire of course the the, the students will go wow yeah this is actually really good yeah. but if you just teach it in a in a theoretical way then nobody's gonna going to want to do it yeah. regardless of it, of they can't yeah. because they are not being offered any tuition on their instrument yeah I think what I sometimes see out of musicians that come out of some conservatoires in the UK at least is that you've got people who sort of can't actually don't do don't ha- don't ha- don't do standards they just do their thing which is really cool because there's you know there's people pushing things forward but yeah. A lot of the time, these guys haven't really. They they don't. They probably couldn't play all the things you are, or they could probably maybe think back to a time when they maybe started practicing and okay, yeah, I think I think I used to play that one. Whereas in America, there's a there's more ra- they're more rounded. I feel like because they like you said, they they're happy to be like, well, this is our music, so we're gonna check it all out. Yeah, well, look, if you, if you look at the folk music tradition, and there is now folk music in conservatoires. If yeah. you go to Newcastle or you go to yeah. Manchester even, I think, and certainly in, in, in Glasgow, in Scotland, yeah, um, sure. you can teach, you can uh, uh, go and, and study a folk degree, which means you'll you'll be getting the ECM folk approach yeah. as well as anything else. But you'll also go back to the source and you'll investigate uh, the history, where does it come from, dance forms, etc., etc. And I think that's a little bit more uh, rounded because the players who are teaching there, which is kind of my generation, I guess, mm-hmm. um, they have come up in in a kind of gigging yeah. world. And um, so they're actually, even though they formed their own ideas and, and came up with stuff that maybe were, wasn't being done in the 80s and 90s, mm-hmm. uh, and they have a, like, a new cutting-edge approach, if you want to call it that. Yeah. Um, they still grew up as gigsters. And, and yeah. I think in America, it's the same thing. Uh, uh, you yeah. grow up as a gigster. At your high school, there will be a high school big band. That's how you get into jazz. Yeah. And so there's always th- that element. Whereas I think in Europe, because there is less jazz, it's less omnipresent than in America, mm-hmm. uh, there is more chance of people just doing it very much by themselves in their attic room. Yeah. And then they decide, oh, I like this. And then they, it's kind of, you know, I'm always saying you should know where music comes from. You should know the roots. You should know how jazz is actually connected to classical and the other way around. Because, of course, the two influence each other, especially in the 20s and 30s of the last century. Yeah. It went back and forth. And um, if you don't know that, then you you don't have the fun that that informed people have. I, I can listen to Prokofiev and Ravel and go, Wow, you can really hear that Ravel met Paul Whiteman in 1923 because look, look what he's doing in his violin sonata. It's like yeah. all the blue notes are there, and he's got the banjo part, and you know, it's, wow, this is so totally jazz inspired, even yeah. though it's a classical composition. Prokofiev has the same. Rachmaninoff has jazz influences, and then of course you hear what people like Art Tatum, who are real crossover animals. They did massive classical chops, and they did jazz at the same time. Yeah. Uh, how they influenced their uh, successors yeah. um, 
you should know about this because you can have more fun and you can be more informed. And if you're looking for something, you can go back to a source and go, well, actually, that's a kind of direction I would like to investigate. Um, but then it's like learning to paint. If you only uh, look at a Mark Rothko painting and go, I want to do that. Yeah. And you've never learned to put a bloody brush stroke on the paper <laughs> the way that, uh, that uh, Rembrandt did it yeah. or Van Gogh. Then I think you're lacking something. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's just craft, you know. For me, the craft and the instrument, the instrument should be played properly. It sh you should have, yeah. you know, your hands should be trained, your ears should be trained, and then you can do whatever you want to do. Yeah. Uh, but at least have some experience with with your past. Yeah. And so that that would be my wish for conservatoires that they actually did what the word conservatoire implies, which means conserved to, yeah. to go back to the past and look where it came from yeah yeah i mean i agree the only thing i, I mean I, I like fully agree but i do sometimes worry that the only reason i feel like that is because i really like old music <laughs> and uh may, maybe maybe i'm wrong <laughs> do you know well, what i mean i i like all types of music and i've been listening i had a period where i was listening to zbigniew seifert yeah. all the time because he had this kind of groove stuff going on and he made yeah. these compositions which reminded me of Bela Bartok, yeah. you know, really weird shit, yeah. and uh, and Jean-Luc Ponty, I can really f so enjoy listening to that. Yeah. So I actually I don't feel I'm limited in terms of styles. I am limited in terms of my sound ideal, which is an acoustic ideal. Yeah. So I'll never be a crossover rock guy mm -hmm. because. I just love the classical approach to violin, the acoustic approach, yeah. the folk approach to violin yeah. too much. But I do use folk elements. I've yeah. got a friend in Ireland, Frankie Gavin. He's an incredible, well, he's the legend in, in Ireland mm -hmm. in, the, in the traditional style there. There's a guy called Jarmun Larsen in Norway. He plays fiddle and hardanger fiddle. Yeah. Those are also influences on me because of the way they, the, their craft, their, the, their love for the instrument and their, their incredible virtuosity within their styles yeah so for me it, it goes beyond being old or not old. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it's just music sure do you like music of course i do yeah and every time i find something new i go hey i didn't hear about that before that's really yeah. cool yeah if we if we all have that mindset and then you can say but okay it's really cool but i want to do that yeah absolutely yeah, please yeah. do because everybody needs to be a, a unique personality of course yeah. um Okay, what time are we on? We've, you, you're thinking can only record ninety minutes. We've not hit that point yet, have we? No, uh, I'm on fifty. Okay, fifty-one. Cool. It's still recording, right? <laughs> yeah, oh, that's good. Um, okay, the uh, what was I had it? I had it in my head, and then I started talking about recording, oh dear. and now it's gone. It was a good question. Well. Maybe it was. So I finished up about uh, people being unique personalities yeah. and having the old. Yeah. Was that what triggered it? Maybe. Well, I'll just ask you something else anyway. Actually, okay. you know what? Um, what it, it it leads onto this. What you were talking about is your view. You don't you don't like to. You don't seem to like to use a pickup, at all, ever. Uh -huh. You you always play acoustic. Um. Yeah, but that's that's because I can. Yeah. Uh, because I'm not in a loud situation on on stage. Yeah. The moment you start playing with drums, things change. Yeah. And so, a, f a long time ago, I decided for myself. Mm -hmm. You know, I worked with drummers a bit and soft drummers. Mm -hmm. I I did choose them, uh, for that reason. Mm -hmm. um, 
but I decided, no, actually the drums takes away sound at the top of the violin spectrum, yep. so the harmonic spectrum, yep. and it makes it sound a bit sort of plasticky. Uh, so I actually, I'm just going to limit myself to percussion, mm -hmm. um, hand percussion and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. And I made one album, Acoustic Voyage, which has percussion and it works, in my opinion, really well, but it's because it's not drums. and. Um, if you work with drums, then the violin sound has to necessarily be different, yeah. and then a pickup can work wonderfully. Yeah. Uh, and then you're looking at electric violins. I just had a, a Zeta violin made for me. Oh right. By Steve in uh, in Montana, who who runs Zeta, yeah. the Zeta factory, and it's a beautiful instrument. And now I have this instrument. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm going to write something for it, but it'll be something that utilizes. The potential of of an electric instrument yeah. that you can use with pedals with effects with loops etc etc which when i write my current stuff it's written for an acoustic setup so an orchestra with a violin i work with symphony orchestras uh yeah. with my band with uh my band and a group of s strings like a string trio or something it's always devised in a sort of chamber musicy or symphonic way yeah um as opposed to a big loud situation yeah. but i'm not saying i'm never going to be in that situation it's just yeah. that my love is to use to be in a beautiful hall not in a in a, th a theater a black theater box but a beautiful hall with a nice sound yeah. and then you play with that sound and that's a craft in itself yeah. and i really enjoy doing that mm -hmm. uh-huh okay yeah so as in you 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 really enjoy the oops sorry there's a motorbike going past you really enjoy the acoustic nature of the instrument well, the acoustic nature of music and yeah. what it does to people's emotions uh, when they are in a room and they hear the sound bounce off the walls or not or uh, something. What what you do when you play an acoustic concert, you're actually inviting people to come to you. Yeah. If you're playing uh, like a really amplified concert, whether it be jazz or, or rock or whatever, you're actually going to people and telling them, this is us. Mm -hmm. listen to us which actually the reaction the instant reaction is to for the audience to move backward a few inches yeah. or to put earplugs in in some cases when it's really really loud yeah. uh, so there is a certain subtlety in my opinion about acoustic music that it draws people in so it, it makes them look inward more uh -huh. which is a classical music principle where you don't do something super loud people actually have to sometimes strain to hear the softest passages and that that makes the, 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 the thing where you can hear the pin drop, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of feeling. In a, when a whole audience does that together at the same time, that's magic. Mm -hmm. That's real, real magic. Yeah. Not to say that there is no magic in, in, in amplified concerts, but for me, I love that magic of the whole sound and the audience holding their breath. Yeah. And that's, that's only possible with, with acoustic uh, concerts. Yeah. You know what's strange is like the acoustic... It seems a lot of the time that people who, musicians who are playing older styles, are more likely to be, to be into that, that approach. And you you hardly ever get guys who are you know, you know, focusing on current jazz, playing acoustically or playing acoustic music. And I just, it's weird, isn't it? That's a good. Uh, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that yet, but uh, I think you're right. Although maybe some sort of, as you said, ECM type players, yeah, especially pianists, yeah. are probably thinking of of the hall as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's true. 
It's true. And and the whole the whole uh, sort of Swedish uh, mm-hmm. like third stream stuff yeah. where it's all about atmospheres. Yeah. You can't amplify that too much because then you ruin the effect or that they're trying to make. So there are but still they'll probably be used to the the bass player will be used to be being amplified. Yeah. Just as a given, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. even like ES you know the Espon Svensson trio. Absolutely. They were yeah, they ESG. still messed around. They were they were like acoustic electroacoustic I guess or yeah. whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And the same goes for the what's the other group uh, that's now uh, uh, the ugly, the dangerous. What are they called again? Uh, ah, you I forget about their name. Snappy uh, puppy? No, no, no. There's a piano trio in the mold of piano trio. Esbjorn Svensson oh, trio. Uh, hmm. um, It'll come to me yeah. another time. People can look it up. Yeah, uh, it's it's basically the the successor of of Esbjorn Svensson yeah. trio. Okay, they're playing all the festivals in those slots where they do that kind of. Okay, and it's and it's like northern northern jazz slot. Yeah, and it's sort of acoustic-y. Yeah, yeah, but but amplified. But amplified. Okay. Yeah, yeah. but the sound is kind of acoustic. It's the piano has mics in it instead of uh, you know there's it's no keyboards. Yeah. And, but they probably have a keyboard for some certain tunes. So it's it's electroacoustic, as you say. Yeah. Yeah. And if 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 I were to play violin with them, I would probably be using a pickup, mm-hmm. given the loudness of the drums, for instance. Yeah. Um, do you do you think uh, this is completely off off this subject? But do you think that you were uh, talented, or do you think? Well, do you believe in talent, and etc. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I certainly believe in talent. I, I can see it. You know, I I teach at conservatoires nowadays, mm-hmm. uh, classical yeah. departments. I have to add, uh, in classical departments, who are really open in uh, in terms of their wanting improvisation to be part of the curriculum mm-hmm. now, which is great because that's the thing I missed when I was studying classical music, and yeah. a lot of people are missing it. So I'm getting like inundated with with players, mm-hmm. classical players, saying. Can you help me out here with this improvisation thing? Yeah. Uh, whether it be jazz or something else, just general improvisation. Yeah. Uh, so I'm I'm loving the fact that 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 that's happening in this period of time, yeah. and that I'm alive to actually see it happen because it's helping a lot of people become better musicians, yeah. which is logic. I mean, if you use your start using your ears more, uh-huh. you're a better musician. Yeah. That there's no there's no two ways about it. Um, but um, I can see a very different, very different types of students. There are the students who don't have to practice very much to be able to do something. Yeah. So I'll throw stuff at them like ghost notes, like within two seconds they get the concept and they've got it. Now that means they have a rhythm talent. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily mean they're great violinists. Mm-hmm. There are some great violinists who can't do it in one lesson, yeah. a whole lesson, they're still struggling, yeah. but they can play a, a violin concerto like nobody else. Yeah. So talent is is absolutely there, but it has different areas. Yeah. And somebody can be insanely talented for the instrument, mm-hmm. for the fingering, yeah. how to play the bow, uh, but they can also be like musically under-talented yeah. or they cannot be free in their mind yeah. or... Uh, and of course, freedom in your mind is something you can actually work on, mm-hmm. just like you can work on your instrument. Yeah. But I, I, I do see very, very different types. So yes, I believe in talent, but uh, in terms of career success, talent is a is a very small part. It plays a very small role. The biggest role is is persevering, setting yourself goals, having vision, uh, all those things that actually 
make you practice properly, uh, make you make connections with people, uh, have ideas for new recording projects or pieces. Yeah. Or, so basically the creativity aspect of it. And uh, there are a lot of people uh, from my generation who would have loved to have been creative, but they, they never really got started. Yeah. And there was nobody there to coax them, to coach them like how to do that. Yeah. Um, and they're slightly frustrated as a result. Right. Musicians. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of string players, like the the ones I was studying with, there were some who just started doing other other yeah. careers. Yeah, they went into finance or into management or whatever. I've I've seen like uh, definitely a score of them. Yeah, uh, even from from my own conservatoire. So uh, yeah. yeah, well, it must be. I think just if you're like really embedded in the classical world, and that's and and that becomes an important thing to you in like musically. Then, then it must be really difficult because you've either got to be one of the one percent who become a concert violinist, you know, who become like a like leading an orchestra playing concertos, yeah. or you got to play in an orchestra, or maybe do string quartet stuff. I mean, there's uh, then there's a yeah, bit well, of teaching, the, the, but there's there's the chamber music aspect is is just as as uh, small a percentage as the soloist yeah. aspect, I guess. Yeah. Well, slightly larger, but you're still forging a career as a as a, a self-employed person yeah. and and trying to make a living. So, yeah, it's it's really really hard if you and the orchestras there are not as many as they used to be in the eighties and nineties. So, yeah. uh, that's also and there are more people coming out of conservatoires. Yeah. Because there are more people than ever studying music, yeah. so th that's of course a conundrum that nobody can really solve yeah. uh, unless you want to start limiting, uh, you know, taking money off conservatoires again and saying just limit the number of auditions and uh, you know only take the the top uh, yeah. f fifty percent. But um, th then again, a conservatoire is also for a lot of people. Uh, we shouldn't forget it's it's like artistic or life development, and yeah. a lot of those conservatoire students who finish will do something else but they take their their experiences from the conservatoire yeah. years which were formative and and maybe very emotional mm -hmm. years as well uh, they take those with them yeah. so it, it's it's i i'm not going to be talking any time about you know limiting access because there are too many players yeah. and, and not enough work because yeah everybody has their own route and yeah. we need we're lucky to have so many people wanting to study music yeah. because we just need musicians and we need amateur musicians yeah. who love the style like gypsy jazz yeah. Yeah, you need amateurs it, right? who come to the concerts yeah. and to actually tell other people about it they're ambassadors yeah. so we need all those different that's a myriad world full of full of different scenes yeah. and and only one of them is is professional yeah in the terms professional i mean that you can actually make a proper living yeah. um, there's lots of semi-pros who try to make a living mm -hmm. and then there, of course there are incredible numbers of teachers which is great because nowadays you can just go and say i want to learn this well you can find a teacher somewhere yeah. and maybe not in your town but certainly in your country yeah. yeah you can find a gypsy jazz teacher in any country in the world now, yeah including south africa yeah so and then there's people like me and 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 the the gypsy guitar names who go around and and actually visit sometimes. Yeah. So I was in Korea in South Korea a few weekends ago. Yeah. With Paulus Schaefer. Yeah. And we played a few concerts and I did a workshop and there were four extremely happy violinists yeah. there who were all str you know stranded in this 
country where there is hardly any Egyptians yeah. in us yet, I should add, yeah. because it is growing. Yeah. And there were like 10 guitars maybe and, and four violins. So, But they were already creating a burgeoning scene, yeah. which is wonderful to, to see. Yeah. Yeah, that's and great. I have to add one more thing about the talent, actually. Um, you said something about people being in a conservatoire in a classical stream and, and for them it being very hard to forge a different career than, than one of the standard yeah. ones, which, which for a lot of people leads to being basically a dropout because, or a, a teacher by default, yeah. which is not a good reason to be a teacher. No. You need to want to be a teacher yeah. to be a good one. Um, so uh, there are, of course, a few people like myself who are lucky that they had, I would say I have a talent for rhythm music. Yeah. That's probably, and I have a, a certain talent for playing the violin. I'm, I'm not the greatest violin talent in the world, and I don't have the greatest rhythm talent in the world. But combine those two, yeah. and you've got pretty good mix. Yeah. And there are people like me who I have, for instance, a master student who's a double bass player yeah. in in Amsterdam, yeah. and he had an incredible like top marks for his bachelor uh -huh. exam, classical music. But he said, no, I, I want to now not do a master's in in that. I want to do a master's in improvisation. Yeah. So he's studying with me, and he's also got that talent, and he's now developing that talent yeah. in a sort of high-pressure cooker situation <sighs> yeah. because he's got two years to do it. I had like I spent ten years learning yeah. that, so I'm trying to reduce everything yeah. back to two. Uh, but he's doing great, uh, and and there are people, more people like him, who who have the talent to visualize something else and actually yeah. do that at the same time. So that's also talent. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. To, to become to try and round yourself off a bit yeah and form your own stream and your own interests and actually go for them and I also f often bump into people who I'll work with in a project in a workshop or something and then uh, for instance a flute player I worked with a couple of years ago from Spain and he said he was insanely talented for improvisation I told him this I said look man you really can do this stuff mm -hmm. so you should pursue it next to your classical studies yeah. and he said yeah, I've been thinking about that for years, you know, but I've been looking and I love the folk, the Spanish folk. Yeah. And I said, great, yeah. that's unique. Go and do it. And he said, yeah, I've been looking for a school. And I said, school, yeah. you're out of your mind. Yeah. School, of course, there's no Spanish flute folk school. <laughs> Just go and find people you yeah, like, yeah. Who, you, who you want to imitate and, and go to them. Yeah. Oh, 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 he hadn't thought. Of, yeah. Now that's a lack of talent in, in, in the yeah. imagination department. Yeah. I know what you mean. I'm hoping I'm hoping my talk with him helped. Yeah. And that he did go out and do something yeah. about it. But I mean, for me that was never an issue. I thought I want to learn this jazz style. Yeah. Uh I'm gonna find a band. Yeah. I'm gonna have to find teachers. Yeah. And you know, I could have sat at home and just moped for ten years yeah. and ended up in a, in an orchestra, which I, I really didn't want to do because I, I'm an individualist in, in my musical the my way of making music and I'm a creator. So then that, that's not my role, being in an orchestra. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I wouldn't make the most of my own talents. And I just went and did it, you know. Come on, yeah. do get it, out yeah. there and, and do it. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you there. I agree. Um, um, I actually probably need to go, though, quite soon. So yeah. we could round it off. What would be good to know is what you're up to now. And uh, you know what? Any any projects you're working on? Yeah, well, uh, the, the trio, my trio, are still going strong. So yeah. we're touring. It's our twelfth year of touring. But I am doing more composing than ever, which means I've just written a violin concerto oh, that's yeah, come out I I that. on CD. 
And I've also reworked a couple of years ago. I reworked Vivaldi's Four Seasons yeah. for basically Gypsy Jazz Trio and Orchestra. I've done the same now for Bach's Brandenburg Concertos. Yeah. And the Brandenburg oh, wow. and my own violin concerto are on a CD called Concertos. Yeah. So people can find that on Spotify yeah. if they spell my last name right. <laughs> <laughs> K-L-I-P-H-U-I-S. Yeah. Um, and then uh, there are some orchestral collaborations as a result of that coming up. Yeah. Um, I'm working on a new piece for the trio that will be like a long 30-minute piece, uh, like a suite or something like that with different characters. Yeah. Um, so it's more like a like a like a story. Yeah. I love I love uh, when there's longer structures, yeah. and it's not just like I'm playing. Right. Okay, let's play satin doll, and then five minutes later it stops, yeah. and we get an applause. Yeah. What are we going to do now? Are we going to play uh, Sweet Georgia Brown, and then we do the yeah. same five minutes, and then I love it when it's a bit longer than that, mm -hmm. and there's more of a thread, and there are more different colors in there. Yeah. So, actually, in terms of my career, I just call myself violinist or concert violinist now because. Yeah. Uh, jazz is one of the many ingredients, but I also very much love classical. I love, insanely in love with with Irish and, and Norwegian folk. Yeah. I just, I love it. I love the sound. I'm jealous of that sound, even, you know. Uh, so I'm 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 trying to amalgamate as many beautiful sounds that I that I can, and that I know and love, um, and just keep making actually new music. However, the difference with the ECM is uh, my music is actually. Uh, a combination of all these really old styles. Yeah. So it's completely new, but it's not sounding super yeah. new. It actually sounds, it's got old classical traditional mm -hmm. things happening. It's got old gypsy jazz stuff uh, happening. Um, and it will have some Jean-Luc Ponty. It will have some, some folk sounds. At, so it's like, a, I love to have that kind of multicolored mix. Yeah. So that's what I'm doing more and more now, and and uh, people seem to like that. So I'm I'm very happy about yeah. that because I'm going to do it regardless. You know? <laughs> that's good, yeah. And and then at the same time, I'm still really happy to play with with uh, people like Gizmo Graf. He's the biggest name in Germany now on on yeah. in, in the gypsy jazz guitar world. Yeah. Uh, he's a super nice guy, and it's like second family to me with his his father and mother yeah. and sister. Um, so I was there just this last weekend and. Uh, uh, I work with Paulus every now and then. I still work with Stocholo, and every once in a year I'll see Fappy Lafferty. Yeah. So I love being in that world, but it's not my full-time profession. And yeah. as a jazz violinist, I can only recommend to others that they don't try to make that yeah. their full-time profession because you are always the second instrument. Yeah. It's a guitar style, yeah. um, as I found out very early on. So, you know, embrace what you know and use it and forge your own career mm. is basically my my mantra. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm doing. Nice one. Okay, Tim, thanks very much. Um, thanks very much, yeah. Matt. Thank you for listening to the Jazz Violin Podcast. You've been listening to Tim Cliffus and me, Matt Holborn. Um, please like, subscribe, and do all of those things. Um, uh, you can email me if you've got any questions or uh, thoughts about the podcast um, or you can even write a comment and a review on iTunes if you would like to do that publicly um, I am hoping that next month is going to be a pretty exciting one um, but I'm not going to tell you I'm not going to tell you any details yet 
I'm just going to say it's uh, pretty exciting. Um, I'm sitting here in the most depressing hotel I've ever been in, and I'm looking forward to getting out of here. So, I'm going to say goodbye. Goodbye.